Keith, is this yours?
Well, good morning, Randolph Street family, and happy Lord's Day to you. Thank you for being here today and joining us in what this hour and a half, 90 minutes or so of time that we so deeply love and cherish together as a local church. We have, we have prayed for you this morning that God would grant you and us a heart and a mind to walk into this most sacred space and to give our full attention and devotion to our great and mighty God. Our prayer is that when we walk out of this space and those doors close behind us, that we do so with hearts and minds full of the glory of God, knowing that he has received the praise that is due his holy name. I pray that's your heart. I pray that's my heart as we walk into this space together. We are grateful that you are here today. Those of you who are in this room and those of you joining us online this morning, uh, thank you for being with us. Just a few announcements. If you'll grab your bulletin, just very quickly, a couple of things to point out. Um, I think, I did not look, I'm glancing back there. I think your 2020 giving statements are back on the table. I'm seeing heads nod yes. So uh, please grab those. If you do not grab those today, they will be mailed to you tomorrow. Uh, so you will save us a little bit of postage if you go back there and grab yours this morning after the gathering uh, would be most helpful. So please do that. Our annual meeting packets are available to you on the back table. We're requesting you take one per family. We had a little printer issue going on this morning, so we didn't get a whole lot of them printed, but hopefully enough. Grab that packet. That's, if you're a member of Randolph Street, we're definitely asking you to grab that packet. If you're not a member, grab one. It'll help you learn a little bit about our church and understand things that are going on. This evening at uh, 7 p.m., join us it's a live feed only. Okay, we're, we're trying to break this up in a way that's safe as we can possibly be. This Sunday evening, tonight, is a live feed only. Uh, Tim and I will be in here, and we're going to walk through that pocket with you so you get to stay at home this evening, pop some popcorn. Uh, you can have two screens, one with the football game, one with the business meeting, uh, and you can enjoy hopefully both, hopefully. Uh, but we're going to review this, and uh, it'll be a very important time for us. Next Sunday evening, we will meet in here at 6 p.m., uh, that is for our annual business meeting. So we need you to come, or at least as many of you as possible to be here. There are two items we need your approval on as a membership. Uh, not only our annual budget, but a special expenditure uh, that we're requesting. You'll see all that information in our pocket. Uh, ballots will be back on the back table along with the box. I think I see all of that back there right now. Uh, so you can make sure you grab that. Uh, if you do not have this pocket, very important for those of you at home right now, uh, if you do not have this ministry pocket, you're unable to grab it today. If you email Lee Stone Street, so, so here it is, and this is for you too, because you're going to go home and forget, I bet. All right, lee at randolphstreet.org. That's all I got to remember. Lee, L-E-E, -E, at randolphstreet.org, and she's going to send you a PDF copy of this pocket. Uh, so if you email her today, she will get that to you or email her at some point this week. Uh, she will make sure she responds and gets this pocket of information to you. Note the other, uh, the ladies' Bible study begins this, this week. 
uh, January the 26th, going to run through April the 13th. That is on Tuesdays, I think. I've got that right. Uh, if you need more information about that, you can see my wife and uh, hopefully our ladies. I know they have enjoyed these studies. My guess is this will be more of the same. Uh, it is a challenging study, challenging effort, I should say, but I know it has reaped great rewards in many hearts. So uh, take note of that, and I trust that you can join with them. Other announcements, other items in here for your own pleasure reading later today. Okay, let's begin our morning by joining the church through the ages. We have done this for 12 plus years at Randolph Street. It has become a rich tradition for us to join the voices from the past and the present, the church, lifting up our voices to confess faith that we so deeply love. This morning, we read from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. And I trust the Lord will take these truths, this summary, this beautiful, rich summary of the gospel and our hope in Christ. I trust the Lord will take these truths and embed them in our hearts and souls as we prepare to worship this morning. The question from the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now together, that I am... truth that brings deep abiding comfort to our weary souls as we prepare to come in to the presence of our God together. Let's take just a moment before we lift our voices before our God, prepare our hearts. Let's take time to confess our sins before our God. Let's embrace the forgiveness by faith that only comes through Jesus Christ. And may God in the midst of his people, be glorified this Lord's day.
reflect on the truth we have just spoken in this catechism and answer. Lord, how our hearts are stirred to give thanks to you. Father, we thank you for the richness, the completeness of our salvation. We are saved to the uttermost for you ever lived to make intercession for us. Father, we recognize we are not only initially saved through the work of regeneration, we are kept by you, kept from stumbling, kept from falling. God, that you cause us to persevere in our faith. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that. We give thanks to you in that. We recognize the struggles that we face day in and day out, temptations that come to us, just the weakness of our faith. And yet, Lord, you fortify us through your word. I pray today, Father, that as our people have come together, your people, with many, many, many various things that they are working through in their own heart, I ask God that you would draw us to yourself, that we would get caught up in you, that our mind would be able to focus on the songs that we sing, the scriptures that we read and hear read, the word that is proclaimed to us, the Christ that is exalted before our very eyes and ears. Lord, that we would be, that our hearts and minds would be renewed this day. Father, that we would see life, that we would see all things through your eyes. And Lord, that we would have great hope because of it. Oh God, I pray you would do a great work for your glory in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me as we have the word of God call our hearts to worship today. We've spoken about the Lord as our comfort. We'll sing in a moment about God as our mighty fortress. Listen to David. Call our hearts to that end. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek.
your seats, lend your ear and affection to this God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of John. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to him. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. A reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Please stand.
team thank you randolph street church for engaging and singing the way you do as we gather here on the lord's day you are such a deep deep encouragement to my soul as you gather and sing to your lord and render him the worship he is due take your bibles your copy of god's word and open with me to philippians chapter 2 for our reading of the sermon text this morning philippians Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, completing this small but most significant section in this letter from the Apostle Paul to this church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1. Let us now together hear the word of God for us today. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray together. Well, Father, this is your word. This is your people. So I would ask that now in this holy moment that you would show mercy to your people gathered here, gathered at home. Father, through your word today, bring forth truth that brings stability to our faith, comforts our weary hearts, emboldens us for the sake of the gospel, grounds us in the promises that we have in Christ. God, do that work. Please do that work. If there would be any unbelievers here joining us online, 
May they be, by your grace, so swept up into the supremacy and glory of Christ that this day they would fulfill now what the scripture aims for in the future. They would confess with their tongues and bow with their knees, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Only by your grace will that happen, Father. So please, we ask, do that good work. Thank you for your word. May our minds be clear, our hearts attentive, as now we experience the work of your spirit in us through truth. We pray that in Christ's name and amen. Spirit with me. 
is one of those Sundays I walk to the pulpit after that, after our time of worship, and I just want to hit a rewind button, start this whole thing back over again. My heart has been so served and my faith has been so encouraged this morning. That song, the songs we've been singing throughout the day, there was a little line, I just jotted it down. I think coming out of the season we are coming out of, still in, as a church. That little phrase, I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. That little tension that I think we all feel in these days, our pain, comfort, hope, it will not be wasted because Christ in the midst of it all is completing his glorious work in us. Randolph Street, you hold to that truth. This is our God. And we hold to that truth by his grace. Well, your Bible is open. Philippians chapter 2, as we tackle the last half of this particular hymn, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, will be our focus this morning. Just a little warning. It's going to be a lengthy introduction. Okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to review some of the things now that we talked about last week, but I'm going to, I'm going to come at this hymn in a couple of different ways just to take this crucial piece of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses really 5 through 11, to take this most important piece of Scripture and make sure we're embedding it into our hearts, we're ingraining it into our minds so we walk away this morning. I feel like, for me, for you, we feel like we've got a good grasp of this text, this holy Word of God. Last Sunday, I reminded you, or I pointed out to you, that this was probably a hymn penned by the early church, possibly by the Apostle Paul, at least adopted by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is a hymn that is absolutely chocked full of rich truth about the second person of the Godhead. There are in this hymn two clear halves, if you will. The first half beginning at verse 5 and working down through verse 8 of this hymn focuses on the humiliation of Christ, the deepest, the deepest of humblings, if you will. That's a word. The second half of the hymn focuses upon the exaltation of Christ, the host of exaltations. So that's the contrast that this author is developing in this hymn. The, the first half, the humiliation of Christ. The second half, the exaltation of Christ. The first half of the hymn focuses upon the action of the Son. I, I made note of that last Sunday morning. This active humiliation of Christ. The second half of the hymn focuses upon the action of the Father toward the Son. So the first half, the action of the Son. The second half, the action of the Father on the Son's behalf. And really we can say the first half is the action of the Son for us. The second half is the action of God the Father for the Son. 
The first half of this hymn reminds us of an historical event. And really it takes us even pre-historical. We'll talk about that in a moment. The second half of this hymn takes us primarily to a future event. The first half, historical, grounded in the incarnation of the Son of God, walking us all the way through even the cross. The second half moves us primarily to a future event in which Jesus will return and bring forth the final defeat of all of his foes. First half, historical. Second half, primarily future. This hymn has several movements. I remember when my wife and I were driving from Geneva, Switzerland, up into the Alps, and we were on the Autobahn. Sadly, I rented a car that I think was a V2. (laughs) Took me 20 miles to get up to the speeds I wanted to get up to. But I remember as we were driving, we would get little glimpses of the Alps as we ascended into that particular region of Switzerland, just little glimpses. And then there was a moment we got kind of this full panoramic view of the Alps. Well, this text is that. This text is a full panoramic view of the second person of the Godhead. Look down at your Bibles with me if you would. Verse 6, it takes us even to to pre-creation. This is the panoramic view. We're going to move from pre-creation to eternity future. So pre-creation, verse number 6, he existed in the form of God. There's hints there before the foundation of the world, who he is. It's calling our mind back, if you will, to this astounding reality, the the pre-existence of the Son of God in eternity. It moves us into the incarnation, his entry into the world. Verse number 6 and 7. 7. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. So now we've moved out of that idea of pre-creation, pre-foundation of the world, the eternal existence of this second person of the Godhead. We've moved into time and space and history. He has entered into this world through the incarnation. Verse 8, it moves us forward even more to the cross, the apex of the obedience of the Son of God in the midst of the incarnation. He was obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. It moves us in verse number 9 to really what is the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God. He's been highly exalted And finally, in verses 10 and 11, it moves us to eternity future. And this final vindication and terrifying moment, this sweeping act of judgment and reality as what is revealed to all in that moment, Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's a, it's a phenomenal hymn. It really is. And it's understanding, understandable why Paul, if he did not write it, would capture it for this particular moment because it gives us this amazing panoramic view 
in, sh- in the short few verses of the second person of the Godhead, moving us from eternity past to eternity future and sweeping through redemptive history and showing us the glory of the Son. Last Sunday, we spent our time up on the first half of the hymn, namely, namely the humiliation of Christ. If you remember, I said last Sunday, this is the passive humiliation of Christ. That's half right. He's active in this. Or the active humiliation, I'm sorry. The active humiliation of Christ, not passive. He made himself nothing. You remember what the text says. He made himself nothing. This little phrase in verse number 7 that the church has wrestled with for centuries to understand what it means. He did this not by losing. I want to reaffirm this because we spent time on it last Sunday morning. He did this not by losing any aspect of his divinity or the divine essence or nature. So making himself nothing does not mean he lost something, but it means he added to himself humanity. Augustine, with one of the more familiar quotes in church history, writes, Man was added to him, God was not lost on him. He emptied himself, not by losing what he was. Here's where we have to be careful with this particular text and this phrase. He emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. What did Christ, the second person of the Godhead, take to him? Well, this text makes it clear. Verse number 7. He took the form of a servant, and he was born in the likeness of men. So he entered into human history, entered into our condition in this fallen world, and he did so not as a king, but he did as a servant. He entered at the the lowest of the ladder of society. He took upon himself humanity, sinless, but full humanity. He was truly human. Took a body, soul, He had affections and a mind. He learned. He grew. He was strengthened. And we know that he died. And notice in verse number 8, he humbled himself. This This is why we call this the humiliation of Christ. He humbled himself. And hear that active aspect of it. He did this. He obeyed the Father. He stepped into this moment. He took hold of the Father's will. He took himself upon himself, human form, and he humbled himself. Ultimately, verse number 8 takes us to the, the fullness of his humiliation, that is, his death upon the cross, that of a criminal. He entered the world not as he should have, a king, and he exited the world not as he should have with adoration, but he did so upon a shameful death of the cross. That's the first half of this hymn. Now, the point of the author, and here's what I don't want us to miss, Randolph Street, the point of the author grabbing a hold of this highly theological hymn is to push it into our hearts and into our minds so that you and I would have 
a pursuit of Christ-likeness. I mean, that's, that's this first half especially, that's what he's accomplishing here. He wants you as a follower of Jesus now to pursue the humility of Jesus. This other orientation, this disposition that is not determined by the attitudes and actions of those around us, but is determined by the actions and attitude of Christ. I mean, this is the whole point. He, he develops this rich theology, and, and don't lose sight of what he's doing. He's pushing it right back into your hearts, and he's saying, hey, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And we, I think we said this, pursuing this type of life as a Christian is simply not easy. Can you tell me something more difficult than pursuing true, genuine, Christ-centered humility? The kind of humility that, like Jesus, turns your attention upon others, not yourself. Like Jesus, considers the needs of others beyond yourselves. Like Jesus, willingly sacrifices for the needs of others. We, we fall far short of what Jesus accomplished. That's no, not being suggested here at all. But the model here that, that Paul's putting before us is this servant-minded humility. I know some of you, and we have your pocket, your annual meeting pocket, I reflected, always do this every year, reflect up on those whom we've lost the previous year members and some that we lost this past year I've got two ladies in mind were deeply deeply humble deeply humble they pursued Christ in this they may, they may not have been able to say it like that but they, they did they pursued Christ in this not guess, my guess would be, if you would talk to those ladies at the end of their lives, there would be no regret in having a heart of humility because they found so much joy in Christ. But this is what the text is calling us to. This is what this text is pushing us toward, this Joyful, pure pursuit of Christ-likeness, namely humility in our disposition toward others, those around us, especially in the context of the church, because Paul's aim here is back to verse number two. He wants us to be of one mind in full accord and unity with one another. This is all still introduction, so just hold on. One more part. There's two principles in this text that I want to briefly put before you that I, I think is a, is a theme of the scriptures that we find in this text Jesus fulfills. Two principles. One, God exalts the humble. It's a principle. It's a principle we find throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself would say this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Not only does Jesus affirm that truth, 
But as you begin to read through the scriptures, and this week I took a few moments just, just to make a, a pass through the scriptures with the help of computer software and see how many times this particular theme rises up, if you will. Places like Psalm 138, God regards the lowly, but the haughty, he knows from afar. You hear that? He regards the lowly. He, he pulls them in. He draws them in. The haughty, he pushes away from afar. He knows them. Proverbs chapter 3. To the humble, he gives grace, favor. Proverbs chapter 29. He will bring the proud low. But the lowly in spirit will obtain favor. James chapter 4, we read this last week, I think. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a pattern that we find throughout the scriptures, this reality that those who are humbled will be exalted by God. Jesus fulfills this clear pattern that's set forth in the scriptures to us. No one was humbled like Jesus. No one stooped lower than Jesus. And what we're going to see in this hymn is no one is exalted higher than Jesus. We are not Christ. Don't hear that. But this is a pattern for our lives. Christ fulfills. The second pattern in this text, and it's, you've, you've got to think it through to see it, or maybe it's obvious to you, suffering leads to glory. Again, if you let your mind just race through the scriptures about the children of God, this is the reality of our lives in this world as sojourners, as pilgrims. Suffering now, glory later. And we find this in this particular hymn. Jesus, he suffers. He's humbled. He, he moves progressively toward this death up on the cross. And you know what happens on the cross. Jesus immensely suffers on that cross. But glory awaited him. You remember Romans chapter 8? That little phrase that we didn't really like. Now, we'll like it later. Talking about being adopted. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You hear that? It's the same idea here that we find in this particular hymn. Suffer now, glory later. And that was Jesus. He suffered in his humiliation, and now he's exalted, and he possesses this glory. And the promise resides for us, the children of God. Likewise, different, yes. But in this world, we, we have a pattern, right? We suffer. Glory awaits. That's just for your further thinking later. All right, now to the text. Here's your outline this morning. Fairly simple as we look at this passage of Scripture today. We're going to see two main points. One, last week it was his active humiliation. This week it's his passive exaltation. We're going to, we're going to dive into the exaltation of the Son of God and see what this means. Secondly, we're going to see this universal vindication placed up on the Son by the Father. And finally, a conclusion for all eternity. This is the panoramic view now being offered up. And this last little section is a fitting conclusion to this hymn. So let's jump into this, uh, turn our attention 
Let's look at this passive exaltation. Let your eyes linger back down to verse number 9. Therefore, God, notice the attention here is given to the Father. Verses 6 through 8, the attention was on the action of the Son. Now the attention is on the action of the Father. It says, He has highly exalted Him, referring to Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So there's two aspects of this exaltation that we'll give attention to for just a moment. One, the Father has, has phrased here, highly exalted the Son. This is a fascinating word in the original language. It's really, it's got this kind of idea of he is super exalted. All right? And I think there's a contrast being developed here in the writer's mind. The humbling of Jesus was the low of all lows. If you, if you know who he was before creation of the world, existed in the form of God, equal, dwelling eternally with the Father and the Spirit, three in one. If you understand the glory that he possessed with the Father before the creation of the world, before the incarnation, you understand how, how deep he descended. He stepped in to something that's really beyond our understanding out of this glorious position into this deep humiliation. Now, as, as profound as that step was, so is this step. He has been super exalted. He was made low, and now the Father exalts him to this glorious status above all. Deep descent, glorious ascent. One writer says this idea here is to set apart in the reader's mind that he is in a class now. Jesus is in a class by himself. He was super debased. Now he is super exalted. After his death... God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. How often in our songs, that, that idea, I've made note of this before. We had it this morning at least once, maybe twice. We're going to see it, I think, in our last song of the morning. Pay particular attention to the third verse, or the last verse of our song this morning. Sean wrote that for us. But in our hymns so often, we, we, we latch on to the resurrection of Jesus. And there's so much truth there that just fills our souls, right? It confirms for us that his death was sufficient and it, that the resurrection of Christ, it just draws our hearts to praise and worship of God. Well, at the resurrection, God vindicated Jesus. He raised him from the dead. And the New Testament authors are going to pick up on this little theme that not only did he raise Jesus from the dead, but he exalted him and seated him at his right hand. So early on, Acts chapter 2. Peter, speaking about David, says he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore, speaking of Jesus, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. 
New Testament authors grabbed a hold of this truth. Ephesians chapter 1, speaking about the power that's working in us. Paul writes, he worked in Christ. This is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and then here it is again, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This exhaustive authority now that's been granted to Christ as he is exalted to the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1. As a matter of fact, this idea is going to be repeated four times in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, chapter 8, and twice in chapter 10. Excuse me, chapter 10 and chapter 12. The writer says this, After making purification for sins, he sat down. He's going to fast forward us right through the resurrection now. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. New Testament authors found this to be a crucial truth for our faith. Jesus died and he was buried. He rose from the dead. And after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he sits enthroned and reigning over all things. He is now exalted. He has received the host of honors to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Glory is His. And really, this is, we looked at this a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago. This is really just the prayer of Jesus, isn't it? It was last Sunday when I said His humiliation was not easy. I, th I think we think of that, you know, it's, it's like this robot he just entered into the world, swept through history, entered into the presence of God, and now he's exalted. No, Jesus stepped into history, and he was deeply debased. It was not simple, nor was it, was it easy. When he took up on humanity, he persevered in obedience to God through this life. And in John chapter 17, you hear the angst of his soul before his ultimate suffering when he prayed, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And now we fast forward to this moment when he is exalted to the right hand of the Father and his prayer is answered. Jesus is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who was humbled. Now secures for him a place of honor that no one has. The second aspect of this exaltation is found for us at the end of verse number 9. There was bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name being referred to here is what? You read, most commentaries will defer to one side of this. Some will say it's the name of Jesus. Probably not. I think the name being referred to here that, that God bestows upon him is not his earthly name. He already possessed that. That's how he was known 
during his humiliation. You remember back at the angelic pronouncement to Mary and Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When Jesus would have lived, there were dozens and hundreds of men in Judea named Jesus. It was a common name. So what, what name are we talking about here? Well, look back down at your text, if you would. I think, I think Paul kind of strings this along, or at least the hymn kind of strings this along, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that, and I think here it is, Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the name. So this exaltation of Christ after his humiliation, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, this distinct place of honor, and what has been bestowed up on him because of his humiliation and obedience in that humiliation is this divine name in his God-man, Lord. This is a Greek word that was used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made before Jesus' birth. It's what some scholars say Jesus would have read out of. This particular word, Adonai, was used to translate the name of God, Yahweh. So, so you've got to capture the significance of this moment. This is now the God-man. For all eternity... The second person of the triune God will be truly God and truly man for all eternity. And the name that's bestowed upon him is this divine title, divine name. He is Lord. And it testifies, if you will, again to his divine quality and his true nature. This is God. And this, this became the confession of the church. This is our confession. Right? Jesus is Lord. I mean, this is, this is the truth that we so deeply love as Christians and appreciate and affirm. This is the truth you will find throughout the New Testament Scriptures that is identified with Jesus, that he is Lord over all things. You heard then the text I was just reading, whether it be Hebrews chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 1, this idea, or Acts chapter 3, or even Acts chapter 2, this idea that what has been bestowed upon Jesus, this God-man, is this affirmation of divinity and deity. He is Lord over all things. So, humiliation, and now exaltation. Seated at the right hand of the Father, a name that is above all names, Jesus is Lord. Let's look now at your text in verse 10 and following, this universal vindication. Verse 10, so that, right? seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all things, given this glorious name that is above every name, so that at this name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. 
So the result here of Christ's exaltation is this universal acknowledgement. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, when, when you study the Bible, when you read the Bible, you have to be a good student of Scripture. Sometimes the word all or even every may not mean all as in all. Different discussion. But I think in this particular text, it is an exhaustive look. Notice what he says here. He's going to make sure you understand this. When he says every knee and every tongue, he's going to back up at the end of verse number 10, and he wants you to see this. Those in heaven, on earth, under the earth. So he's capturing everyone. In heaven, I think even the angelic host, those who have gone before us, those on earth, those under the earth, no one escapes this appointment. God the Father will bring all of humanity into one captive audience in this day. Every. Now imagine this scene that's building for us in this particular hymn. Every human being to ever live in this moment will come before the Son, the powerful, the wealthy, the rich, those who possessed earthly kingdoms and earthly authority. They will all come and they will all bow down before this one, this Jesus, and they will confess with their tongues. I think this text brings us into this already not yet feel, and you probably felt that tension already. Already Jesus has been exalted, but there is this not yet reality. There is coming a day when all will acknowledge it. And notice, if you would, on that day, two things will happen. Every knee will bow. So this is a picture now of reverence, submission. It's kind of ironic because what kneeling pictures is what one scholar called extreme debasement. It's a humbling of us before the one who was humbled and is now exalted. But that's, that's what this idea brings up, this physical posturing. This is future, but it is certain. This physical posturing of which all humanity and all created beings will bow before the Lord and they will give the reverence to Christ that is due his holy name. This is what's happening in this idea here that he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And as a result of that exaltation, all of humanity, all created beings will come before Christ at that glorious day and they will bow on their knees before this Christ. It is a posture of humiliation. It is a recognition that the one whom we bow before is worthy of our respect and our reverence. That day is appointed by the Father. Secondly, they will confess with their tongues. So not only will there be a physical posturing play out in that day, 
but there will be a verbal acknowledgement also. All humanity will pay homage to Christ. All humanity, everyone who has ever been born on that day will recognize Jesus for who he is. Imagine the chorus that will rise up on this glorious day when all humanity will set their eyes up on Jesus and they will bow before him and with one voice they will cry, Jesus is Lord. Peter O'Brien in his commentary now brings something to our attention that we need to hear. It's a sobering comment. He writes about this day. Some will do it gladly. Others because they cannot resist. Sobering. The one who has been humbled has now been exalted. My eyes can't see it. I can't grasp it with my physical senses. I just believe the truth of God's word. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. But there will come a day of which my physical senses will grab a hold of this reality. And O'Brien in his commentary brings this sobering reality to us. Some will do it gladly. I hope that's you. There will come that day that we will fall on our faces before the eternal king and we will confess with our tongues and for some it will be a glorious act of worship. This is our Lord whom we love. But as O'Brien notes, others will do it because they cannot resist. There will be no free will in this moment. every knee of every man and woman ever given life will fall down in a posture of deep reverence and humiliation before the Lord. And every tongue willingly or unwillingly in that moment will because of his awesome presence confess finally Jesus is Lord. Now, I would be remiss not to say this to you online and here in this room. You bow now in joyful adoration and gratitude or you will bow then in terror and judgment and fear. That's, that's what the call of the gospel going out to us says. We bow now, and as Romans 10 reminds us, we confess Jesus is Lord, or we will bow then in fear and the terror of judgment, confessing. This is the commitment of God. Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn by myself, from my mouth has going out in righteousness a word that shall not return. I mean, that means it is absolutely certain. He's not taking it back. The word has gone out. It's not going to return. It has gone out. And what is the word? To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
So that mass of humanity that begins in Genesis chapter 3 that rebels against God in that day will not rebel. Romans chapter 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. This is a divine commitment established in eternity past that all in that day will bow and confess. Now, this universal submission, not redemption, be careful, we don't want to throw out the rest of Scripture. This universal submission, not redemption, will be most fully recognized when it will be recognized, not most fully recognized. It will be recognized at the return of Christ. Jesus' present tense has defeated all foes through the cross. Colossians chapter 2 makes that certain. But at his return, this defeat will be tangible, it will be visible, and it will be undeniable. He will enter back into time, space, and history, and all will acknowledge now this is the Lord. That's why for the Christian, the return of Jesus... That second coming, that climactic moment is something in a world of which we live in, we long for. I mean, it's just in us. We sing the song. We're getting ready to sing it. We're getting ready to sing it. It is just in us. It is implanted by the Spirit of God. We long for this day. We long for this day not just to take care of all of our problems, which I do long for, but we long for this day because then we will seek Jesus for all that He is, not only us, but all creation. And our hearts long for that. It's why we exist. It's why we're here. It's why we do ministry together why you give your money to the cause of the gospel because we we long to see jesus made known we long in this world for his fame to be glorious among the peoples but we know it's only partial now at that day it will be full and complete now look at the end of this hymn verse 11 this is the grand conclusion every knee will bow Every tongue confess. And then this is where the work of the second person of the Godhead has been moving to this grand and glorious climax. They will confess this. They will bow to the glory of God the Father. The work of the Son culminates in the glory of the Father. Really, you could argue here, and I think it's, it's a good argument, that the glory of the Father is tied to the glory of the Son. And here, as the Son is glorified, the Father now is glorified in all eternity. And this is the very heart of Jesus in his life and in his ministry. Back to John chapter 17, that prayer on the last night, Jesus said these words, Father, the hour has come glorify your son hear that glorify your son 
so that the Son may glorify you. And this is what this hymn is pointing us to, that moment of which the Father is going to glorify the Son, this passive glorification, right? The Father does this. He exalts the Son. He causes every knee to bow and every tongue to confess, and He does so so that the prayer of Jesus might be answered. Glorify your Son so that He may glorify you. And this hymn drives us to that moment. The moment of all of history has been rushing to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this hymn should be a, an eight-week series, not two weeks. But we need to capture the theology here, so much theology for us to grab by the work of the Spirit and place into our hearts moving us from let this mind be in you to all things, including Christ, including his work, including his humiliation, including his exaltation, all things moving us now to the glory of God. That last little phrase was the prayer of Jesus. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And that should be the very prayer of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, that is why you were made. It's why you breathe. You want to come to this moment and say, what, why am I here? Why do I exist? Here it is. Imitate Christ in this way. You exist to the glory of God. That should be your joy. That should be your vision of your life. You breathe, you exist, and you have been redeemed for the praise of his glory. God made us in his image that we might image forth and reflect his glory. That's the end of this hymn the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, make that the end of your life. Amen? In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn. It's going to capture some of this truth. Let your voices now echo what will come. This is like a practice, a little rehearsal, right? What we do now is going to echo into that day when we will stand with this massive humanity. Whatever that looks like, whatever form that takes, we bow to our knees and we lift our voices up. Let's take a moment now as we sing this song to give our Savior and our God the glory that is due his name. Let's pray together. Father, this is a thick, thick hymn few verses, so much truth. Would you, by your spirit, work this truth in us now? Let your people here at Randolph Street capture this reality. Let us have this vision of Christ, humbled, exalted, 
Let us have this mind in us that Christ had. Servant, others-oriented, the gift of humility born in us. Lord, do that work in our church family. You have been so gracious to do this through the last number of years. Do that good work in us that we might with one unified voice give glory to you, our God. Father, thank you for devising such an amazing, glorious plan. We wait with expectation and hope as we look toward that day when all who've gone before us will rise and with one glorious voice we will cry out with all humanity Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father bless your holy name we pray that in Christ's name Amen please stand and let's sing together Your power is on me. 